Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to wherever you are in the world. And thank you for joining us for this, the latest episode of the State of Digital Clinical Trials podcast. It is my absolute privilege uh, to have you join us today. For those who don't know, my name is Richard Young and I work here at Viva and I'm delighted to be the host and hopefully the invisible host of this podcast. Today, I'm very excited because we're going to start moving our story forward. We spent some time talking about the theory of digital clinical trials. Today, we're going to start moving into the actual live practice of clinical trials. And I couldn't think of two better people to join me today than Tertu and Leone. And if I may turn to you, uh, Tertu, as the president of Sites and Patients at Cineos, and I definitely want to come back to that job title. That excites me. Uh, and Leone, who I've known for a lot longer, uh, the advisor R&D practices both within Cineos. Thank you very much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, before we go too far, perhaps I can start with you, Tertu, and perhaps for those guests who may not know you as well as I'm getting to know you, perhaps you could introduce yourself and perhaps expand a little bit on your journey to date and some of the things that excite you. Thank you, Richard. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, to be here. Um, so yes, as, as you said, my name is Tertu, Tertu Haring. Um, I am with uh, Sineos Health, where I lead a sites and patients, uh, well, basically a unit. Um, I go back a long time. It's always uh, an age thing, of course, when you say... We never age ourselves on the show. We never age never. ourselves. <laughs> Timeless. <laughs> Um, so when I graduated from medical school about 30 years ago, uh, I started working in hospitals, mainly in surgery and uh, general surgery and OBGYN. But after a few years, I thought what a, what a, there must be more than a hospital to things that matter in healthcare. And I really by chance landed a, uh, a position as a research physician, as a principal investigator in a phase one and two uh, unit uh, with Kendall. So that's where I started as a principal investigator, um, moved through many, many different roles in the uh, ecosystem of clinical development in the CRO world, uh, and then moved to Sanofi, where I was for nearly 20 years in roles overseeing local, regional, global clinical operations, uh, trial operations, data management. Uh, and my last few years, there were focus completely on clinical digital innovations uh, to make things happen in a uh, new setting. Um, and then moved to Cineos a um, little over six months ago, uh, where basically everything comes together, but we'll talk about my current role a bit more. Perfect. So in an era where we still read that, is it 40% of first-time investigators refuse to do a second trial, you're obviously bucking that trend, <laughs> so that's good. Good. Cool. Thank you. We're definitely going to come back to your role, to some of your experience and history, which is fantastic. But before we go any further, Leone, mm -hmm. I've known you a lot longer, mm -hmm. um, but perhaps for anyone who, again, doesn't know you as well as perhaps they should, mm -hmm. would you mind just introducing yourself and a little bit about your own personal journey? Thank you. Um, and, you know, like Tertu, it's great to be at this podcast and having an opportunity to share my experiences and thoughts. Um, so I've been in the industry many years. Um, Richard and I go back many years, um, I think, actually, with Glaxo. Yep. Um, I have got a primarily a background in data management, um, and I have worked in a variety of roles over the years, clinical operations, data management. But the roles that I've tended to gravitate towards and uh, just happened uh, was more tech transformation projects 
representing the business on behalf of these large uh, tech transformation projects. Um, originally, actually, um, when we transferred and uh, innovated from paper to electronic CRFs. Um, so I enjoy that kind of work and I enjoy the sort of the, the creativity that comes with it. Um, but actually, one of my most rewarding roles, uh, which is quite relevant to today, I um, had a, a team, um, a group of data managers and CRAs some years ago, about 10 years ago. And that was fantastic because actually data managers and CRAs are two sides of the same coin for data quality. And we did quite a lot of work of how we could um, bring those roles closer together. So I think we'll pick up on some of those um, uh, experiences later in the podcast, but um, that was a great um, role that I had. And today I uh, joined Sinios a year ago, just the head of Turtu, um, in the consultancy uh, group there. And I've been working alongside clients in this sort of space. Perfect. Yeah. So between you, we have the ability to answer almost any question and tackle almost any challenge. Mm -hmm. So how about we start with you, Turtu, first, um, and then... Leonie, I'm going to ask you <coughs> to drop in and out as well mm -hmm. of this because I think we have the perfect opportunity here to talk about, first of all, patience and sites. I want to come back to your job description because that's a rare thing. Um, and then maybe we can talk about how data managers and clinical operations interact with that mm -hmm. vision. But perhaps, Tertio, I can start with, what's your vision for patients <coughs> and sites? What do you think the industry needs to be doing? <laughs> the industry, of course, is a I always like to think of the industry as an ecosystem. Uh, we have so many different players. We, of course, have the regulators as the end-all uh, institutions to, to, to basically satisfy and please and, and, and get our uh, products and our dossiers passed. Um, but in the industry, we have to realize that none of us would have a job if it weren't for doctors who want to spend time in doing clinical studies and if we were if it weren't for patients who sign up to basically volunteer their condition for us to study in whatever setting with whatever new treatment or existing treatment or 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 not a treatment we we study patients and that's why we make a living and that's why we can do what we do um but patients are always under the supervision of doctors, and doctors work and live in sites. So my job title as heading the <coughs> unit that looks after our sites and, and our patients just makes perfect sense for me to put those two groups in the ecosystem at the center, because without them, we wouldn't have anything to do. And having started all of this journey as an investigator, I can't focus on anything but making life as easy as possible and making um, all we do as accommodating as possible to the needs of investigators and sites so that they can be successful in um, uh, enrolling patients or finding patients, identifying patients, enrolling patients, and most of all, extracting the data out of the patients and then for us to work with the data that come out. So it's terribly exciting to be basically full circle after starting as an investigator to now be 
in charge of a unit that looks after all the investigators and all the patient data that they collect. How do you feel about the terms patient centricity and site centricity? I've always had a slight allergic reaction to the two, not because I disagree with them, mm -hmm. but I think it's about the execution around those. How do you feel? Well, of course, everything we do should be compound-centric. We are here to develop new compounds that offer op options and treatment options to patients. However, we live in a world that is centered around patients because hospitals and, and wherever our investigators live and work, they do that for patients. So in order to be compound-centric, we also have to be patient-centric, otherwise we will not collect any, any knowledge. But in between is the investigator as the gatekeeper, as the guardian, as the medical oversight, as the, as the advocate for, for the patients. So I like to really think that, yes, patient centricity, we absolutely have to include the, pa the patient voice, the patient experience. We have to collect data on what really matters to patients. But the sites have to make it work. They have to be the operational execution hotspot. So, yes, for me, site centricity in all we do, keeping in mind compound and patients, the site centricity, I think, is the piece that we often overlook. We, um, I think one of my reactions to site centricity has been this idea, the role of technology is to overcome and help. Yeah. And yet I feel during the early days of the pandemic we opened the war chest and just tipped everything into the sites and said there you go we've helped you is that how you saw it and what could we do differently uh i think that's absolutely how we how we did it with all the best intentions and with all the best intentions to keep our our, our studies going to make sure that we were looking after patients that we couldn't ask to come into hospitals etc i mean it was all the best intentions um, but we asked investigators and site staff to really go outside of their comfort zone in an overnight sh shift. Um, one of the things that I have struggled with most in that time was how do we secure the data flow, not only from the patient to the database or to the sponsor, but how do we secure that the investigator actually stays on top of what is happening with their patients? <coughs> while they're on a trial and while the data flow no longer uh, centralizes in that physical site where where they didn't come anymore. So maybe in another interesting area, and then I want to come to Leonie because that data pickup as well, but um, regulators. Yes. Do you think they're doing enough to support these initiatives? That is a bit of a trick question, <laughs> Richard, because keep. I always like to remind myself that regulators have an enormous responsibility to make sure that we don't put drugs on the market or treatments on the market that are not helping in the general population. So they have an enormous responsibility towards the general population and not just those patients that are in a clinical trial. Um, however, I think the things like, like remote... Uh, telemedicine, uh, remote data collection. It happens in day-to-day -day medical practice. 
And I think the regulator should be supportive, if I may say so, of at least being able to apply what is happening in the regular medical practice to clinical development with the right oversight. And that's when we come to Leone with the right <coughs> level of data quality oversight mm -hmm. and risk management of the data that are, are collected. So that is a bit of an in-between. I, I don't want to say, are they doing enough? I think they're... <laughs> I think that the, the mindset of collecting data and clinical development shouldn't be so different from what we do in normal medical practice. I, I think I echo what you said. I, I actually think they're doing more than they've ever done. And I don't mean that to be negative. I mean, very no. positive. The guidance documents, the, the openness of big conferences like SCDM are Absolutely. unprecedented. We're all future patients. That's the sad story. Mm -hmm. It's the truth. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we might want to do things faster, quicker today. But there's also a future. And I think we have to apply common sense to that. Mm -hmm. So how about we use that as a moment to launch? Then we're going to come back to the two yeah. of you in this front. So data. At the end yeah. of a clinical trial, the only thing that exists is the data. <laughs> so yeah. how would you like to see the vision evolve? How would you think you're looking at the challenges that we're facing today? Yeah. So... As I was preparing for this podcast, actually, I was reflecting on the journey that I'd been on, um, but also the industry. And it's curious that we have changed a lot, but in a way we haven't changed much at all, which is good. Um, so we have better tools for, for certain. We've got better data platforms where everything can come together, the patient data, the um, you know, vendor data, the lab data, etc. And we've certainly got the... Uh, potential to manage and deal with that data faster which we have to ethically you know these are patient recorded uh, data points and we have a uh, ethical duty to handle the data quickly so the technology has certainly moved on but actually the type of data that we are asking for if I think when I first joined the industry a lot of that data was unstructured it was um, free text um, we try to code it, and I think over time, perhaps we have overstructured the data, over coded it, and had lots of you know check boxes and uh, particular uh, variables that you can select. But actually, now with if you think at technology today, generative AI, etc., we've got another opportunity to go back almost to basics and to encourage the patient voice to come through more powerfully by creating free text fields again. They can um, write things down. They can record information um, on video, whatever, you know, record it verbally. Um, so with all of the new technology, we've got the opportunity to really look for insights in that data that perhaps we, I would like to think we were a little bit closer to the patient many, many years ago, and maybe we can go back. And there was a, an interesting example I came across recently for natural language processing if you look at some of the responses of patients if you analyze it you can the technology can sometimes spot trends of patients that might be in danger of dropping out you know there may be different ways that they record or they express themselves so that's really powerful as well so Yes, we have moved on in terms of the technology. We can get data captured much more in real time. We have a duty to handle that data in real time, and maybe we'll come back to that later. But actually, coming back to the fundamentals of patient data and what it means for us and the insights, 
I feel in a way we're coming back to the basics, which is good. So to pick up on that, so I 100% agree with you. A couple of things. When I started at Glaxo, um, I remember being taught very early on, there's only two questions you have to answer in a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. Did it work? Did it hurt? <laughs> and I'd like to think we're still in the near of that, but we're not. The reality mm -hmm. is now there's a third, a fourth, a fifth question. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's cost, maybe it's time, maybe it's something else, maybe it's patient sensitivity, convenience, whatever it is, there's more questions. Mm -hmm. But the key back then was we managed patience. Mm -hmm. I think with the advent of certain technology, and I'm going to put EDC front and centre, mm -hmm. fragmented all of our data because it only managed a certain percentage of data and to respond we broke data managers up some did SAE some did labs some did EDC mm -hmm. some did something else we lost the patient mm -hmm. and I really think that's the opportunity to come back here and you know, it's in your job title we've all mentioned it mm -hmm. going back to patients I think yep. that's absolutely critical um, but also I think our teams have become fragmented as well. They've centralized. Maybe um, we have a lot more roles handling that data as the technology has evolved. So, you know, there's been more complexity. But again, I'm seeing a shift back with new technologies, new platforms, new ways of working that we can more easily get teams together, working together collaboratively, even if they're not in the same room, but working on a common data platform more in real time, this ongoing data surveillance is now a reality and again I think that's curiously bringing us back to the past um, where we can work more effectively and handle that data quickly because also the other driver is speed to get drugs to market faster and so all of these new innovations but also new ways of working um, will help that as well but it comes down to rigor as well of the operations and to make sure that people are working quickly on the data and taking action. Do you think um, this idea of having to validate ideas is actually inhibiting our ability to innovate? You know, are we so determined to prove everything's a good idea before we try that we actually slow ourselves down? I can see there's a, a reaction coming from <laughs> Turkey straight away. But I, I, my sense is no one wants to be the first to try something and really, really push the envelope. Is that your sense, or do you think there's more of an innovative culture these days? I think there is more of an acceptance. I mean, the <coughs> pace of technology change, you know, I think we all embrace it in our everyday lives. So I think people are inherently more um, willing to try it out. Uh, being the first has pros and cons. Um, I think it's having the courage to accept if something isn't working as intended to maybe course correct. Yep. So I think that the danger and I think the fear that people often feel is, you know, it's not going to work as they thought and yet they're on this train and they can't stop. So I think the secret is to, you know, short bursts, um, bites of the innovation and course correct. Um, but I do see much more of an appetite than there was many years ago. Perhaps the same thing to you. Yeah, yeah. No, I was smiling because the um, I see people be very keen on innovation, then sort of understand what it implies and what the risks are, and then and then sort of step back. I think there is different roles to play for many different parties in the ecosystem, and that's what I wanted to comment on. And mm. of course, having spent almost 20 years in, in, in Sanofi, a very inno innovation-driven uh, company, I know you had Patrick here on the on the podcast, uh, he's, he's following up on a lot of things that, uh, that I had the privilege to initiate at, in, in Sanofi. 
there's other big pharmas that uh, are very, very keen on doing things differently. However, when you are in a CRO, you also see all the smaller companies and you see the biotechs and you see the one compound companies. And on one hand, they are extremely keen to piggyback and, and, and impl implement innovations that, that maybe they couldn't ever afford to invest in themselves. On the other hand, risk aversion is a real thing because the stakes are so high. Mm. Um, so I really think as, as people in clinical operations, whether it is at a, at a site level, at a data management level, at, a, at wherever, we have to, as Leone said, make sure that we build enough um, secure points, basically waypoints to say, okay, this is now we can all trust, we can all rely, this this now is something we can all implement. And then there shouldn't be any going back. And that is what I still see, that people, even if it's established, if we've seen that it works, it can work, people still like, oh yeah, but 10 years ago, or well, last time a compound like this was approved, this is how they did it. And I'm like, well, but the medical practice has even changed over time, so mm -hmm. let alone the technology, etc. So. Uh, and and absolutely in terms of the technology of capturing the data, but also how you clean it exactly. or handle the data, how you drive insights and then actions back to the site. And that yeah. really needs to change as well. And I, again, over the years, as we have become perhaps a little bit further removed from the site and the patient, the approaches from data management have been very much point to point cleaning. And we've got better tools now. We've got better platforms that everyone can collaborate from looking at the data from their own point of view. So I hope that we're going to be moving more towards um, conversations, um, looking at the data within the company, more from a, a more holistic um, analytics based um, perspective. And we move away more from that sort of the hypothetical cleaning of the data. Uh, and I, I do think that's changing as well, but that will take time as well. And it's, yeah. I think there's also the confidence that you can get the right insights in the data using the right tools with the right teams, and that will take time. What can data management actually do to help sites and patients on this journey? Some of it might be picking the right technologies, mm -hmm. but there's probably some also some far more fundamental yep. building blocks we could look at. So. What would you advise there? A couple of things come to mind. First of all, and again, this is something that we try to do in the past, but sometimes um, things get in the way. We must be more disciplined in getting the voice of the sites and patients in our data standards, our data collection tools. Uh, there's a lot that, as a data manager, we can influence and drive those um, better insights so that we can make the, the data collection inherently easier and therefore better insights. So there's definitely that. Um, I think, again, we're talking about new technology. I remember when I was um, earlier in my career, going on co-monitoring visits was an eye-opener. Actually going to the site, talking to the site staff really helped me understand yeah. how I could work better. And again, with new technology, video conferencing, you know, having a quick chat with site staff if they're having problems to really give them um, the the support they need at the time from a data manager to help them understand maybe the intent of how that data is to be collected 
um, I think would be very useful as well. So sometimes these things are not groundbreaking, but again, I, I think sometimes we need to go back to basics a little bit. We've got the technology and we can mm. we can do it. What do you think the sites and patients would ask from data management? What still what blow, blew my mind when I was an investigator, and I know that it still happens, <coughs> is that we have different people looking at the data from a medical perspective, from a pharmacovigilance perspective, from a clean data perspective, from an endpoint mm -hmm. assessment perspective. And we all ask the same questions to the investigators or we ask different questions on the same data points. Mm. Um, so I think as data management as a whole, irrespective of its department or but data, the management of the data that come out of a patient, I think the first thing back to basics is to say what is a clean what does a clean data set look like mm -hmm. and how are we going to integrate all of the questions that we may have around data into one question to an investigator because there is and that is something so simple that it's really back to basics integrate mm -hmm. not only integrating the data sources but also integrating the data review integrating the data querying in integrating how what we really want to know mm -hmm. and that is going to be a game changer for a lot of sites and investigators uh site staff um uh, and all <laughs> it's very simple maybe yep. very simple but uh Data managers are not the only ones looking at the data. Keep that in mind. They're not the only ones sending the queries. Exactly. And that talks about evolving roles yes. as well. And again, I think the roles over time perhaps haven't evolved as much as they could do. Again, technology can really help us to get to, I think, clearer differentiation between the roles. I think we know that data managers and CRAs are often doing the same checks, um, you know, Risk-based monitoring has been around for a while, but we need to take it really to the next level and really transform um, what the CRA is doing, what they really add value with versus what can be done through technology and the data managers so that we don't duplicate and have different people basically asking the same question. And I know that you've got it experienced, her yes. too, of what the CRA role could evolve into yeah. and the value. Yeah, totally. I think the... One of the principles that, that I tried to have with the teams was that um, do what you really need to do on site, on site, and everything mm -hmm. else try not to do it on site mm -hmm. because it's precious time. It's people that are really busy with patient care. <laughs> Can't stress that enough. Um, which means that I think there is a lot of value in, in having staff on site, sponsor staff, CRO staff, whether you call them a CRA or whatever we call them, and I don't want to call them a CRA because there is such a notion to that. Um, and, and referring to what you said earlier about how we threw all the technology at sites during the pandemic, um, that staff that we send out to be on site should be focused on supporting that site to be their best self to be their success how do we drive success for the site how do we help them find identify and enroll patients how do we help them put all those technologies with the patients how do we help them uh, uh, enter data only once uh, uh, ask all the queries at the time of data entry basically um, how do we set them up for success in oversight of patients uh, uh, well-being 
and look at all the data behind the scenes that mm -hmm. you don't need to be on a site to check mm -hmm. and what's what what has been baffling me and and i know that there are companies more and more investing in this is that we still have staff at site who type what they see in one screen onto another screen and then we have CRAs, they come and check whether what was on the one screen is correctly typed into the next screen. And I don't even want to go there because my mind just blocks at that yep. notion. So <coughs> there are so many things that we can do to, to make that data flow mm -hmm. so much more smooth and use the data that we have. And, and what you said about language processing, check versus checkboxes, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. using data that are collected on site into the EDC um, uh, or not, well, don't call it an EDC anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it, it's a data pool of data that have been collected in a structured or less structured way. Yep. And the stuff that we send to sites should be helping sites do that in the best way possible yep. and behind the scenes we yep. should have a continuous knowledge of yep. how what the quality of the data is whether it's yep. usable data whether it meets the needs whether it answers the question does it hurt work or does it hurt mm -hmm. um and um really rethink how we've how we've set this up with mm -hmm. all these mm -hmm. new opportunities that we have passionate about this as you can see i'd like to use this as a launching point then to tackle something that i i, I have a personal opinion on quite a strong personal opinion <laughs> on um we're talking about transformational revolution of clinical trials mm -hmm. we're talking about bringing all of the different users so i would say patients sites sponsors and CROs and transforming all of their experiences for the better. Mm -hmm. I feel like for the last four or five years, I've been told that's decentralized clinical trials. And I have a real reaction I'm containing right now. But anyway, what do you think? Is it, are we just discussing DCT without using those three letters? Or are we doing something different? I have a strong opinion about DCT as well. This is the perfect time. Decentralization of clinical trials has been happening when uh -huh. since, for me, since I graduated <clears throat> from medical school, even before I was on trials. I've been making, when I was an investigator, I made a lot of phone calls to patients. I asked patients to collect data in a diary card. I asked them to tell me um, how they were feeling or, or that is all patients generated the data collected outside of a clinical setting. So that is the core of DCT. Mm. However, however, with, um, uh, with uh, mobile phones, because I, I still remember the time when we were discussing whether we could send a handheld to do an ECOA with the patient and then, and then the funny stories and we all have them that the, the, the ones that were set up in Korean ended up in Greece and the ones that were set up in Greeks and ended up in Mexico and and um, so we've just so many we have now so many more tools in our mm. in our hands to to make that easy um, to collect data outside of the clinic because that is all that DCT is, mm. decentralization of clinical trials. I think we have an opportunity that we're not using enough 
And I'm not saying fully fully virtual, etc. I'm saying that we have patients that literally live not in reach of the option to participate to a clinical trial because of where they live, literally physical, where they live. They don't live close to a site or they can't get to a site or they are in a country where we don't run a trial. And with decentralized, with the use of these technologies, we should be able to enable participation to a clinical trial for every patient who fits the protocol. So on one hand, we've been doing it all along, but we haven't called it that. On the other hand, we have technologies now that we're not using to the full potential that they could have to allow patients into trials wherever they live. So that's my strong opinion. I'm very intrigued. What is your strong personal yes. opinion, yes. Richard? I, I, honestly, I I just have an allergic, full-on anaphylactic reaction to the term decentralized. I think it's disingenuous. Yeah. I think we should be reaching out to patients, per your example, in the most appropriate, safest, but most expeditious way. Mm. And I think, I think for me, the, the groundwork is laid out in our social lives. Yes. There's a reason Meta, or Facebook is now called Meta, it's a metaverse. In every other part of our lives, we're cutting through traditional geographical, Absolutely. financial, economic boundaries. Mm. If we all want to go from a centralised to decentralised, or maybe it's decentralised to centralised, it's distributed where we should be. Exactly. Mm. Uh, I'll allow you to keep the D, but you know, I want to move into this distributed way because then we connect people yes. properly. Yes. And that's the way. But we're also getting so much more sophisticated in managing our own data with apps. You know, you don't have to ring the bank anymore. <clears throat> you can self-service so many things in our day-to-day -day life. So this seems to be a fear that when it comes to the patient side. Yep. Well, and even even in medical world, I mean, so many countries and 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 hospitals, people carry their own medical records mm. in their mm. phone. Mm. Um, and we shouldn't make such a big, big deal about collecting trial data in that same fashion. Uh, if we can do it, 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 I would say, if you can get a mortgage online without ever seeing somebody, how come I can't sign up for a clinical trial <laughs> online without ever seeing somebody? Now, before this conversation gets ahead of ourselves, I want to just be conscious of time, but also I would like to ask you another couple of questions. So. This world we're moving into of transforming and modernizing. I'm I'm getting to a point where I'd like to start talking about what we should impose upon our industry. Mm. You know, we can talk about things, but what could we impose just to make things better? Um, what do you think we can actually lay down from your experience to date and say, this is now moving towards best practice. This is how you should approach clinical trials. Well, the first thing is, and it's really going again far back to basics, but we should focus again on what that we measure what really matters. And does it work? Does it hurt? Yes, but what matters to the patients? And again, with technology, we have so many opportunities to collect data from patients that give us an indication of what impact does the drug have. And this comes to one of my favorite terms, patient-generated data instead of clinician-generated data mm -hmm. or centrally generated uh, uh, data. Um, that is the one thing I would really like to impose, that we measure what matters to the patients in their health journey. I think that's a key one for me, because I think going back to some of the Tufts research of 10 years ago, I forget the numbers now, it was 
40 or 50% of data collected is never used in a submission. Then mm. what do we collect mm. it for? Mm. And what cost Unethical. did we have to go Unethical. to? Unethical. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's exploratory, but then sometimes I can get a bit too far the exploratory. Yeah. But I wonder how much data was just there because we did it last time. Mm. Or history yes, tells yes, us yes, we should yes. do it, but yeah. it doesn't get used. But I think that's absolutely mm -hmm. one thing. What about you learning from a data perspective? Do you think there are things we can just improve overnight? Well, I think the proof of the pudding is in speed of delivery of the trials. And I think if we get it right with the right tools, the right data, the right approach to how the data gets cleaned, handled, actioned, closing the databases very promptly and getting that clinical trial result into a submission, you know, it's not going to be months, it's not going to be weeks, it's going to be days. Um, if we can prove that, then I think it's that to me is showing the value of uh, working in a different way, perhaps focusing more on the data, focusing on the insights in a more modern way and actually getting those drugs to patients faster. So to me, that's that would be the proof point for me. Yeah. As you know, I always preserve a last question, which is a kind of an opportunity for you to say whatever, whatever mm -hmm. things irk you, whichever things you really want to transform. But I'd love to ask you the kind of key question, perhaps, Leonie, I'll start with you, if I may, is the kind of magic wand question. If I could give you a magic wand, mm -hmm. and there's one thing you wish you never had to do again, you could consign to room 101 that never be thought of, <laughs> and if there's one thing you could suddenly magically do tomorrow morning, what would they be? So what would I consign? Um, I, I think... What I would stop doing, I think, what I would advise, um, you know, again, preparing for this, I was thinking about what would I do differently. Um, I think one thing is, and it comes back to the roles, don't think of a role as a role for life. You know, keep on moving around and um, ensure that you have a, a broad view, a broad perspective and a, an evolving perspective of what can be done. So uh, stop doing, I suppose, is just sort of staying in your comfort zone and doing things the way they were always done. Um, uh, my magic wand, I think, would be coming back to what we said earlier, get back to the basics, look at the data in a more uh, patient-centric, um, medical-centric way when you're cleaning whatever you know cleaning means today because that is not that point-to-point -point cleaning but really... Um, handling that data um, more from a, a clinical setting and using other <clears throat> using other roles more wisely. And actually, you know, one point we didn't make was Turtu and I both were in industry and we're now in the CRO world. And actually, using some of our insights um, from the 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 uh, pharmaceutical company role into the CRO world, where actually. You know, we actually get much broader insights, I would say, in the CRO world as well. So making sure those insights come in as well. Well, if you're kind enough to join me again, that might have to be podcast yeah. two, yeah. but we'll see. <laughs> so thank you for that. So Tertu, magic one questions for you. I, I, I want to continue on the DCT. I think one thing that we should stop is think of DCT as something special. And that then immediately leads to what I want to start. And that is that we look at every trial and every site and set, out, set it up in such a way that we unlock the potential of participation to a clinical trial for as many patients as possible and stop thinking that DCT is something special. Start making it our day-to-day -day work. 
think that's a pretty good, pretty good ambition. I, I want to say thank you to both of you. I'm going to give you the final word. But just before I do that, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has joined us today. If you've enjoyed this podcast and maybe you've seen some of the other ones, um, we would love to hear your feedback. So we're about to open a new email address that uh, is sdctpod, all one word, at viva.com. And I'm sure they'll put it up on the screen. Please send us your feedback. If you want to be a guest, if you have comments, if there's things you want to hear, things you want to stop hearing about, please let, do let us know and we'll do our best to accommodate all of that. But I did promise the two of you the last word. So maybe I can hand over and say any closing thoughts for our audience. Let's do it together. And let's do it now. How could I possibly top that? <laughs> thank you very much, Leone. Thank you very much, Toto. And thank you for everyone who has joined us today. Have a great day. Bye.